I saw you singing, third grade girls. You did good. I saw them in their class this morning, and I told them I'd be watching for them. They did good, Miss Faye. Yeah. Yeah, great to see the kids. We love them. Thank you, choir. Thank you, musicians. All right, we're talking about envy today. And I am in a series called Tangled. I'm dealing with the seven deadly sins, the things that trap us, that snare us, that trip us up and keep us from being all that God has called us to be. This, uh, this week I went to a reception that was featuring 20 retired NBA players. And I wished I was taller. I was standing there talking to three of them. They were all seven feet tall, talking to them like this. I said, don't you guys have any retired guards in the NBA? And they said, well, most of us are centers. And they were. They were tall people. And, you know, you get a little envy in your heart, and you look at somebody that's that big and tall and think, man, I wish I'd gotten taller. You know envy made the front page of the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Did you see it? You know what I'm talking about? The official sponsor of the Olympic Games is McDonald's, and that's where everybody in the two villages gets their coffee. Did you know this, Jonathan? Yeah. But there was a reporter, and he saw a Starbucks cup in the crowd, and he thought, what? What? And he followed the cup back to its source and discovered that NBC, the official sponsor of the Olympics, had its own private Starbucks. They have 2,500 people there. And people who work for NBC can get Starbucks at the Olympics. And the headline said there was envy about the Starbucks at the Olympics. It happens every year, apparently. Starbucks is not an official sponsor. They're not being censored or anything. They're just not an official sponsor. They can't sell their coffee there officially. But if you give $775 million for the exclusive rights to broadcast the Olympics, you can have your own private Starbucks. And you will be the envy of both the mountain village and the village by the sea. Right, Jonathan? Envy, you see can happen anywhere at any time to anyone, anyone. Somebody asked me, is envy the same as coveting? Well, it's in the family, all right? But there's an edge to envy. There's a resentment and a bitterness in envy. There's a sense of injustice in envy. Envy's got an edge to it. And envy trips you up because it rots the bones. The problem with envy is this. Usually we envy 
those near to us. We may covet the mansion of the starlet, but we envy the brother who did better than we. We envy the person in the family who's more beautiful or richer or smarter. Envy invades us in the intimate relationships of life and it poisons those relationships. That's why it's so important to address it because it touches you where you live and it sours the relationship with the people you're supposed to love. It creeps in where it shouldn't and it comes close to home. Now, the illustration of the truth and the fact that envy can invade at any level, in any place, in any person's heart is the story of King Saul. And it's in 1 Samuel 17. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 17. We'll put the text on the screen here in a minute. But here we have the story that immediately follows David killing Goliath. So in a way, this is a prequel to the other four messages I've preached, all right? I'm doing the prequel today. May do a prequel next week as well when I talk about anger. But today's prequel is about envy, and it grips the heart of the king. I said, anybody is susceptible to envy. This is a man who is taller than anybody in the kingdom. The Bible says he's a head taller than everybody else. The Bible says he's a good-looking guy. And he sits on the throne of Israel, and envy poisons his heart. Can you imagine a man of that status and that stature who falls to the sin of envy. It staggers the mind, doesn't it? Verse 57 of chapter 17. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, who's that, children? That's Goliath, right? As soon as he returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with David still holding the Philistine's head. All right, don't think about that. Let's just go on. <laughs> Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. For the tenth time. You should know me by now, King Saul. I've been playing the stringed instrument in your presence. But King Saul has so many people attending to every little need that he's got. He can't learn all their names, you know. So David has been at the court, and he has been in Saul's house. But Saul doesn't really know him or know who he is, or if he did, he's forgotten. So he asks him who he is and who his father is. And he's from Bethlehem just a few miles away. After David had finished talking with Saul, 
Jonathan became one in spirit with David. This is Saul's son and would be heir to the throne if the line of Saul was preserved. Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed a Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul is slain his thousands, and David is tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. One translation says he had a jealous spirit toward David. In fact, this is the premier study of envy in the Bible. How Saul's heart turns sour to his once young friend, David. See, Saul forgot that he was chosen. Your chosenness is your best protection against envy and greed, jealousy and lust. That is to know that you were chosen by God. It is a wonderful, marvelous, penetrating truth that can touch every relationship you have, every attitude of your mind and heart, everything that you think about others and yourself when you know that you are chosen by God, that you are called by him. Saul was astonished when Samuel said to him, to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, the prophet said to Saul. If not to you, Saul, and your family line. Everybody's thinking about you, Saul, and your family line. And Saul says, wait a minute. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. That's the smallest tribe. And my clan is the smallest clan in the tribe. Why would you say this? Why would you say this? And maybe you're saying to yourself, why would the preacher say this? that I am called, that I am chosen. Why would he tell us that? Do you feel chosen? Do you know there's a doctrine in the Bible called the doctrine of election? 
And it is explained by the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter and by Jesus himself. You have not chosen me, Jesus said to his disciples, but I have chosen you. I have chosen you. You've been chosen. Chosen by God. God has extended his grace to you. He has put it over you like a blanket. We are saved, the scripture says, by grace through faith. And even that faith does not belong to us. It's not something we generate. It is a gift of God. So this relationship you have with God is all about him choosing you, bringing you into the family, loving you. You are a chosen people, Pastor Peter said, a holy nation set apart for God's purposes that you might declare the glories of him who brought you out of darkness into the light. You were chosen. Now you got to get your teeth in it. You got to get your arms around it. It only transforms you if you receive it. And, and Saul had a hard time receiving this truth. When Samuel got ready, Samuel anointed him king. He poured the anointing oil on, on Saul's head. But when Samuel got ready to announce it to the nation, to tell everybody that Saul was the new king, Saul was so scared, intimidated by people, he ran and hid among the suitcases and the luggage. They were having a grand meeting and all the tribes had come. And I guess they stacked all their luggage in some place like they do at the airport. And they sent Saul's friends to find him. And they found him tucked away there, hidden among the luggage. And they grabbed him. Probably took several of them because he was bigger than all of them. And he, they pulled him out of the luggage and brought him into the light. They put him in the center of the circle. Saul didn't understand. He couldn't conceive that God had called him. But it's fundamental to knowing who you are. It is your best protection against envy being jealous of somebody else's position or their condition, their appearance or their family, for you to know I am chosen. I have been called. God has placed his hand on me. When you get comfortable in the call of God, when you get content in who God made you and has called you to be, you're a force on the planet then. Nothing intimidates you. Nothing can scare you. You're not going to hide from anything. Once you know who you are in Christ Jesus, that all the treasures and riches of God are yours in Christ Jesus. That's where you got to live. That's where you got to be. And Saul forgot that, and jealousy crept into his heart. Now, some people know that they are chosen of God. Intellectually, they believe it. But they've never changed to fit this truth. They've never appropriated it so that it's true, not just theoretically, but practically. See, if you, if you realize and believe and receive that you are the chosen and elected of God, and if you change your behavior to conform to this truth, then God uses your witness in the world in such power. Can you imagine 
the anointing of Saul. He's the first king. He's the first king. He's from the smallest tribe and the smallest clan. He's a big man, but he's humble and intimidated by the crowds. And Samuel pours the anointing oil on his head. You know what? Samuel was making a king out of Saul. The anointing is not just a recognition that Saul is the one. It is the conferring of the position upon him. And the scripture says that you have been anointed by God, that you have been appointed and anointed. You not only belong to him, but you have the calling as well. Saul didn't see himself as a king until he felt the oil coming down, until he realized it was true, until he moved into the circle and understood indeed that God has selected him for this great and mighty purpose. It's such a wonderful prevention of envy to receive the truth of your anointing and conform your life and walk to that truth. You know, of course, that we appoint and anoint one another as well. We talk about ordination, which is the laying on of hands. But the ancient practice in the good book is that a man like Jacob will take those hands and place them on his children and this is the, the scripture he blesses them as he touches them and places his hands upon them Joseph did the same thing just like his daddy did with his sons and his grandsons they each passed down the blessing Isaac did it too guess what you do it too father and mother you pass on the blessing or the curse. The blessing is your child's knowledge that he has been called, that he is chosen of God, that he is loved and precious in the sight of the Lord, that he has a purpose and wonderful plan of God on this planet. That is the blessing. And you pass it on by speaking the word of faith to your children. You do it to your friends as well. So we are to pass on the blessing, not the curse. And when we do so, we make our children and those around us comfortable in the place God has called them, in the appointment that they have. And it is the great prevention of envy in the heart. Now, when the announcement is made that Saul has been chosen, here we have the first experience of envy recorded in the life of Saul. And it is not his own envy, but it is the envy of other young men who aspired to the throne. Two groups of people surface, and he is hearing both his supporters and the skeptics as God confers upon him the throne. His friends 
believe that God has done this thing. They affirm it in Saul, even though they know he's not perfect. And the scripture says these valiant men go with him when he leaves, and they stay with him. Javier's about this tall. Is he three or four? How old is Javier? Three or four, I think. My brother Daniel came into town, and on Friday, I called him up and said, I want to come over and visit with you, and I'll provide dinner. And my brother Danny said, fine, I'm going to order some pizza. You go by and pick it up. I said, good. I'll pick it up at 545. I showed up at the door of the house where Andrew and Allie, my nephew, and his wife live, along with Javier and Jimmy and Ruby Love. And I rung the bell, because I was the pizza man, and I had the pizza in my hand. And they opened the door, and they said, it's the pizza man. And I come in with the two pizzas, and I put them on the table, and we make small talk for a while. And Javier and Jimmy, his brother, are just looking at me, because they've seen me around here, and they didn't know I was a pizza man. They didn't know. And so I sit down at the table to eat a piece of pizza. And Javier looks at me and he says, why are you staying? <laughs> he is dumbfounded that the pizza man has sat down at the table and he's eating our pizza. <laughs> he is dumbfounded. He can't believe I stay. In fact, when Allie gets home later on, Javier says to Allie, the pizza man stayed to eat dinner. <laughs> I haven't seen Javier yet today. I just want to know what he's going to tell me. You know, he comes to church. But it's amazing. He stayed. I think Saul felt the same way about all the guys that stayed with him. <laughs> what? You're going to stay with me? You're going with me? This is amazing. And it is part of the affirmation of his chosenness, that he is the appointed one, that he's the king, that God's really done this, is that these valiant men say yes, and they affirm him. And that's what your friends will do, even though they know that you're not perfect. They will support you and affirm you. And you must be able to receive that and say, yes, this is my calling. This is what God's doing in my life. And I can receive that. And it is a great part of friendship to say yes and blessing to one another, even though as friends we know we are not perfect. But friends su support you despite your weaknesses and imperfections. And skeptics fight you no matter what gifts you may have. There's another group of men in that same crowd who say, what can this fellow do for us? And they leave in a huff. They leave miffed because Saul is appointed king, not them. And that's the first time Saul experiences envy. And you will experience envy in your life just like this. Somebody's going to storm out of the room mad when they 
when the chosenness is upon you. Somebody's going to slink away upset because you made the promotion and they didn't get it. Because you've done well and they haven't. And something comes up and suddenly there's envy in the room. And let me tell you how Saul handled the envy and jealousy that he experienced from these other young men. The scripture says, Saul kept silent. The scripture also says, when you keep your mouth shut, people will judge you wise. Oftentimes, the proverb is true. Silence is golden. What do you say to somebody who's got sand in their heart, resentment, I should be getting that, I should be in your status, that's my position, you shouldn't be there. What do you say to them when they're resenting you and they've got this root of bitterness inside? How do you handle that? I tell you, silence is a great way to handle it. Just be silent, okay? At work, when the envy comes in and the envy's got an edge to it, silence is a great way to handle envy of siblings and co-workers and fellow students and close people in your life. And Saul had the wisdom to do that at this time. But Saul was rejected for his disobedience toward God. Even before David killed Goliath, Samuel said to Saul, because you rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you from being king. Now, there are a number of ways that Saul could have responded to that charge, to that correction, to that conviction that he had sinned, and he knew he had, because he did break the word of God, and it was clear. He could have said, God, I confess that I have sinned. Forgive me for my sin." I repent and I ask for restoration. And the scripture says, if you will do that. See, that happens to everybody who's chosen. Everybody who's chosen, everybody who receives the call of God upon their life messes up. All of us do. And some of us, I guess all of us, do it repeatedly. And sometimes we respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit with resentment and bitterness and envy of those who got a better job and a better deal and a better assignment in life than we. And we feel like it is injustice to us. Instead of repenting, we let the root of bitterness spring up inside of us. And that is exactly what the king did. Instead of coming clean with God, and being restored in his relationship with God, even though his line was not going to sit on the throne. Jonathan was not going to be on the throne anymore. That was settled. But Saul had 20 more years to sit on the throne, and he did so in a way that's almost insane when you read it. It's like he lost his mind. It's like envy truly did rot his bones, and from the inside out, the man was poisoned. Because he didn't make his peace with God 
and through that, his peace with people. Instead, he stayed in this stew that really ruined the last half of his reign and rotted his bones. You can compare yourself to others if you wish. You can play the comparison game and you can believe the comparison lie. Society has always laid you up against others and compared you to your peers and it always will. The women came dancing, singing their little tune and what they did was they compared Saul with David. Now you would think that anybody who was credited with killing thousands of the enemy would be happy. Surely it was an exaggeration. He probably had not personally plunged his sword into thousands of enemy soldiers. So it was surely a compliment, but not when David is credited with tens of thousands. It doesn't matter how magnanimous the assessment of you. If it's not as good as the person you're compared to, resentment, bitterness, and envy can spring up in the heart. The society will always compare you. As an athlete, you will be compared with others. That's a given. As a businessman, you will be compared with others. Even as a preacher, you will be compared with others. And preachers are known to have big egos. And I think there's some envy in the ranks of professional ministers. In fact, Jesus said of the professional religious people of his day, outside, you look fine, but inside, greed and self-indulgence is eating you up. He reserved his harshest criticisms for religious people who look good on the outside and on the inside were full of dead men's bones. Envy can get any of us. And whenever we start comparing ourselves to other people, we can feel the spur and spike of jealousy. There are seven billion unique people on the planet today. No two of them are exactly alike. They are as different as every sunset God has given this planet. All those sunsets are judged by somebody to be beautiful. But they go the full range of color and light. And the same is true with you and who you are and how God made you. Your greatest defense against the comparison to others is to say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made and I am chosen by God to be his, and I am called of his to perform his work in the world, and what I am and who I am and what I do in this world is absolutely unique, and there's nobody else walking on this planet who can do what I can do. I have a unique calling from God. My relationships are unique. My gift mix is unique. The circumstances I am operating in is unique. And because of that, it is unfair 
for others to be compared with me or me to compare myself with others. Don't get your affirmation simply from your friends or your detractors. Hear them, but get your affirmation from the God in heaven who made you and called you, designed you to be his own. You are a child of the Father. No, they say that the Father is the one who maybe more than any other confers the self-image to the child. And many of us have worked for years and years to get the approval of our earthly dads. And we long to hear our father say, you did good. Some of us never have. Some of us had dads who would not confer that blessing. They withheld it. They held it back, thinking it would make us tougher and better people. And some of us have fathers who have gone on and are no longer here. And they can't fix what they didn't do for us. But your father in heaven can. He's the real dad. He's the one who made you. He loves you. He is called father because of all the fathers who have ever been, he is the best. And if you will allow him to be your father, and if you can call him daddy or Abba, if you can receive that he has chosen you, it will change how you think about yourself. It will make you comfortable in your own skin. It will give you contentment and power in the midst of your friends and your enemies. And it will help you become all God has called you to be in this world. Let's bow together. Father, let's all say Father. Father, you have asked us to come to you when we're in trouble, when our hearts hurt, when we've done wrong. We're coming to you now, Father, with our sins, our mistakes, our shortcomings, our needs, and our heart's desires. Father, we pray for your forgiveness and for your blessing. Father, I pray for the one who came here who most needs to receive this truth that you, that they are chosen in Christ, that you have chosen them. God, I pray that no one will leave this room without the experience and knowledge of your love your appointment and your calling God I pray for the brother or sister who struggles with envy for whom it has become a root of bitterness that stirs the emotions every day and steals away peace and joy God I pray that that one 
will repent, confess, and get free of that monster that rots our bones. God, I pray for those who are dealing with the jealousy of others and envy at work and school and in the family. God, that you will give us the wisdom and strength to handle that negative emotion. And Father, I pray that you will help us all to know ourselves in you as sons and daughters of the King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.